following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, welcome, brothers and sisters, friends and guests. As always, I'm very glad that you're here. Uh, if you have heard me preach before, you'll know that I am not typically uh, one for you know like a catchy introduction. I usually just get right to it. Uh, but today I'm going to make an exception because uh, we're going to encounter this fella named Nimrod today, and we're not really going to spend much time talking about him. But I just had a little something that I wanted to say, uh, so you'll you'll get to enjoy some Bible trivia real quick uh, while everybody's still getting settled in their seats. Um, so Nimrod is described in the Bible as a mighty hunter and uh, seems to be possibly the fellow that was in charge of the Tower of Babel. He gathered many peoples under himself and, uh, and was a, a mighty ruler in ancient times. And yet today, if you have ever heard the word Nimrod, um, you probably know it to mean kind of like a dummy. And so the question then is, how do we get from a mighty hunter and a great king to um, a Nimrod? And so uh, one of the earliest records that we have of using the word Nimrod in a, in a derogatory way is actually Robert E. Lee, for whatever reason. He wrote a letter calling someone a Nimrod sarcastically, as in, this guy is a little too big for his britches. He thinks he's important, and he's not, which is kind of the story of Nimrod. Um, there's a couple more examples of that. And then the, the real kicker is when Daffy Duck calls Elmer Fudd a mighty Nimrod. And we assume that the writers of Looney Tunes were using this sarcastically because Elmer Fudd, you know, isn't really a mighty hunter. Um, but unfortunately, they overestimated the biblical literacy of the average Looney Tunes viewer. And so now everyone just thinks that Nimrod means dummy. So here we are. <laughs> and with that out of the way, um, I, like I said, I just, I just wanted to get that one out there. It's very easy in a sermon like this in a series like this to just kind of give a series of Bible trivia and that's not really edifying so I've, I've tried my very best to avoid that kind of thing but um, that one just tickled me too much so please enjoy um, so if you've been here the last few weeks you will recognize that we are working through the book of Genesis uh, in a way that I'm calling thematically we're practicing something that's formally called biblical theology which is the study of the the whole story of the Bible, the grand narrative, the, the overarching plan of God's redemption of his people. And Genesis is a great place to do that because, as I hope that I have shown you, God shows us what his plans are right at the very beginning. He demonstrates what he intends to do. He sets the precedent for how he's going to operate. He shows us the patterns to continue to watch for throughout the rest of history. And so as we work through Genesis, the, the beginning of history, we're also seeing the beginning of God's plan. And so the first week, we, we <clears throat> discussed creation, and we looked at the theme of the garden. God creates a place and he puts his people in it, and he gives them everything that they need. And he commanded them to, to fill the whole earth, to take this, this God's garden and to bring it across all of creation. Adam, we learn, the first man is our, our representative head before God. And we saw how he failed by sinning. He did not obey God's commands properly, just as we all do not obey God's commands properly. But then we saw that unlike Adam, when Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, he came to, to reestablish a new garden. And unlike Adam, Jesus didn't sin, which is how, through Jesus, we can all have the salvation, the peace with God that Adam was not able to have because of his sin. We also saw uh, the next week, we looked at the, the narrative specifically of the fall, and we saw how the serpent entered the picture, the enemy of God's people. And we saw that God uh, cursed the serpent, and he cursed man and woman, and he prophesied, though, that in spite of the fact that there's now enmity amongst the earth, and especially enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that one day the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, thus, thus ending the conflict forever. And so we know, again, that Jesus is that seed of the woman who was born of woman but not man because he, he was born to a virgin Mary, and he lived a sinless life, and with his resurrection he secured the victory that he will finally bring to pass at the end of all time when he destroys the serpent and all of his people once and for all. Last week, we looked at the, <clears throat> the narrative of Noah and the flood. The flood is a demonstration of God's judgment. So we see that mankind has sinned. He's corrupted creation. He's failed to obey God. And so God's response to this corruption is judgment. 
The flood serves multiple purposes. One, to, to wash away, to wipe away the sinful, but also to wash away the sin. So God, God wipes away the evildoer, but he, he chooses Noah, who was faithful, and so he chooses Noah to persist through the judgment, and God establishes his, his covenant with Noah to never destroy the earth with a flood again, but he also reaffirms the covenant that he made with Adam between Noah to once again fill creation with the glory of God. And Noah, although chosen by God to survive the flood, and although counted as righteous through his faith, is still sinful, as are we all. All of us, sons of Adam and sons of Noah, are, like them, sinful. So we saw the pattern of God's judgment coming to wipe away evil, but also coming to wash clean His chosen. And we recognize how that applies to us still today. As, as we repent of our sins, as we, receive the, the, the <clears throat> as we receive God's right judgment upon us, those of us who have faith in Jesus and His death and resurrection, instead of being wiped away by it, are instead wiped clean, washed clean in the blood of Jesus, where we are then able to be reborn as a new creation. We have a new spirit inside of us, and we will one day have new bodies as well when we join Jesus in that new garden in paradise where there is no serpent and no enmity forever. And so we now arrive at the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, as I mentioned before, the, the way that I've chosen to divide this up, thank you, the way that I've chosen to divide this up, um, it, chosen is not really the right word, but the, the way that I have divided this up is roughly the way that Moses, who is the author of Genesis, divides it up. He divides up the different major narrative sections of Genesis uh, with a device that we nowadays call a toledot, which is the Hebrew word for generations. So Moses will write, these were the generations of, and he'll carry us through a bunch of names, a genealogy of people leading up to sort of a, a key character that we then expand upon. And so whenever you are reading through Genesis and you see these were the generations of, you know that that is a, a major breaking point. And so the story of the Tower of Babel actually is sort of tucked into the middle of one of these Toledots. It's not its, its own narrative in the same way that the flood was between the, the Toledot of Seth and then this is the, the Toledot of Noah leading to Abram. Uh, the flood was in between those, so it's kind of its own chapter. Babel actually just kind of fits within this transitionary space. And so I, I believe that the reason for that is that Babel is meant to sort of sum up where we've been so far. We're about to move from the history of kind of all of the universal mankind and the beginnings of all things, and we're gonna move to Abram, which is the beginning, the, the father of the nation of Israel. So we're sort of moving from, from one category of history to another, and so this transitionary period includes the, the story, the narrative of Babel, and so it serves as kind of a conclusion of this first part, a summary, and then it's gonna push us into the, the continuing history of God's people specifically as it's represented by Israel. So even though this is kind of a short, even seemingly tangential part of the Bible, I think that it's worth studying because it is, um, it, it is literarily significant, right? When you read the Bible as a, as a sort of a book, as a story, this, this seems like a part that's important. So to sum up kind of where, where we've come until now, we can see that uh, following his typical pattern, Moses kind of summarizes the lines that are not chosen first. Sort of what's, what's the rest of the world up to? Um, and so then he moves into the genealogy of the, cho the chosen line. So we saw that example with Cain versus Seth. We kind of got a little summary of what Cain and his people were up to. And then we saw the generations of Seth leading up to Noah, kind of bringing us into the, the next section of history. And so likewise, here we see the generations of the, the non-chosen lines, which of Noah's three sons, <coughs> Shem is the chosen line. So Ham and Japheth are the non-chosen lines. We get kind of a summary of what they are up to and what their peoples are up to. And then we have the, the narrative of Babel tucked in the middle. And then after that, we have the, the genealogy of Shem carrying us to Abram and onward. And so uh, we'll also recall that a typical pattern in Genesis and much of the Old Testament, really just kind of in Hebrew literature, is, uh, is to describe something and then to go back and describe a specific part of it again in more detail. And so we, we also see that here, right? We have the, uh, we have the general summary of what the non-chosen line is up to, and then we have a little breakout of like, here's specifically what, what some of them are doing in more detail, and that is the Tower of Babel.
So this first part, this summary of what the non-chosen line is doing, uh, is often referred to as the table of nations. We'll discuss that in a minute and get there. And then we have the story of Babel itself and Shem's line leading to Abram. So that's kind of the general landscape of, of these two chapters, Genesis 10 and 11. So in Genesis 10, we have one of those parts of the Bible that's just kind of a long list of confusing names, and it's really easy to just kind of breeze past those, to skip over them. Like, I don't know who this guy is. This name doesn't really come up anywhere. You know, this person is lost to history, so we'll just turn the page and get on to the interesting stuff, the story. Uh, but there is some work to do here. There is edification. Um, this is in Scripture for a reason, right? And so the, the Table of Nations roughly takes the format of, um, of Noah's three sons. I guess that's uh, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Um, that's the order they're given in the Bible, but not their birth order. Uh, we, we are given sort of uh, a summary of their descendants. So, you know, Japheth had I think, five sons, and their names are so-and-so, and, and Ham had sons, and then those sons, they had sons. And we have all these names and all these peoples, and they are described as being all of the peoples and nations of the earth. And so if you, if you read these names, some of them are just kind of self-evidently the names of people groups that we're going to encounter in the future. We see people like the Assyrians. We see people like the Canaanites. We recognize those names. Okay, those are people groups we see in the Bible. But there's quite a few other ones that if you, if you don't have a sufficient kind of historical background, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on. But there are, um, there's a, a people group that's maybe the, the proto-ancestors of what's going to become the Greeks. Uh, there's a group of people that is listed as living in Iberia, which would be like modern-day Spain and Portugal. Um, if, you, if you really dig in deep, you'll find maybe like the early ancestors of the Mongolians and of the Indians, of different African peoples. Um, there is a fellow named Ashkenaz, which you may have heard of like Ashkenazi Jews. That would be describing a group of people that moved to live in Eastern Europe. Um, and then there's also a lot of names in this table of nations that, that you know, just kind of historically, secularly, we really have no idea where they were um, or, or what they ended up doing, right? So we, we don't read this table of nations as like a categorical list of like each type of people group. And, you know, it's not a worthwhile enterprise to try to figure out, you know, which modern day people groups are associated with which ancestors. But, but what we do see here and what does make this worth studying um, is, is the point that's made which is kind of unique amongst ancient, uh, like ancient religious texts, right? There's like the Babylonians and the, the Akkadians and the Assyrians. A lot of them had, you know, a creation story, a flood narrative, and you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of them kind of sound similar to what we find in the Bible because, well, you know, it happened. It's true. So those those people that are writing down their religious histories of real events, they're probably going to sound similar. But but this this table of nations is unique. Of, of all of kind of the ancient religious texts and histories. And the, the point that I believe that God and Moses are making here is to show that all the peoples, all the nations of all the earth, north and south and east and west, are descended from Noah, and therefore descended from Adam, and therefore made in the image of God. So it was very common in that time to think that your people were the good ones. The, the special ones, right? I mean, we're the, we're the smart ones and they're the dumb ones. We're the attractive ones and they're the ugly ones. We're the powerful ones and they're the weak ones. And since they didn't have, you know, sort of the, the scientific or economic or, or uh, you know, political understandings to say, you know, oh, well, you know, because our culture adapted some sort of agricultural technology, we were able to grow at a faster rate and therefore became powerful. You know, they wouldn't pick up on that. So they asked themselves, well, why is our nation so much more powerful than this nation? It must be because we're inherently better than them somehow. And maybe it's because our God is inherently better than theirs. But unlike those types of stories, this story, which again, is, is a, a true story, a history, tells us instead, no, every person is actually fundamentally the same. We're all made in the same image of God. We're all made with the same nature. We all come from the same Father, and we all have the same sinful tendencies. So instead of saying, oh, there's, there's one group of people that's better than the others, even though God is actually choosing some of these people to be his elect, his chosen people, he's not saying that they're fundamentally different or special, except that he's chosen them. He is, in fact, saying that all of these peoples are the same. 
And so we're going to hold that in our minds because I think that's significant to interpreting this sort of mysterious story of the Tower of Babel properly um, as it applies to the rest of Scripture. And then we have a little breakout as part of this table of nations where we discuss Nimrod. He was explained to be a mighty hunter before the Lord. That phrase, uh, before the Lord, it's up for some interpretive debate because it's not clear what it means. Nimrod was a mighty hunter and God saw him. That's true, and God sees everything. Nimrod was a mighty hunter dedicated to God. Nimrod was a mighty hunter uh, opposed to God. And so this is a good little lesson in how to kind of do biblical theology in a healthy and safe way. And it's easy because the answer to that question sort of comes like right next. So it's easy to find. But in chapter 10, it just says Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And we don't necessarily know what that means. And now we move to chapter 11 and we see that in chapter 10 it says Nimrod was the founder of Babel. And so we go to chapter 11 and we see that Babel is described as a, a negative example. It's not a good place. It's a sinful place. And so that answers our question, right? So when, when you have a question about interpretation in the Bible, when something's vague or could have two meanings, like Nimrod being a mighty hunter before the Lord, the correct way to answer that question is to see what the Bible has to say about it. And of course, there are a lot of examples where the Bible doesn't necessarily have something to say about it. And so then, of course, the key there is to not make too sharp of an interpretation. If we don't have a really good answer for something, we just don't need to answer it. If God wanted us to know something clearly, He would have made it clear. And in this case, it happens to be clear because if you just keep reading a few paragraphs later, we have the answer. So Nimrod appears to be someone who was mighty among men, and he collected a lot of followers to himself and presumably ruled them by force because he founds these cities and uh, commissions these great projects. So now we come to the, the narrative of Babel. This is in Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole thing, just a few verses. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so we, we look at this story, and some things are pretty obvious. It seems to be a fairly straightforward tale. I'm going to draw a couple of connections. We can look back at God's command in, in, <clears throat> in creation. Adam, and we see Adam was told to, to multiply, to be fruitful, and fill the earth. Well, here at Babel, the people come together and they say explicitly, let's build a city and a tower so that we do not get dispersed through all the earth. So this, this endeavor, this tower-building enterprise, is in direct rebellion to God. And again, this is, this is how we know how to interpret the character of Nimrod, because we see that he and his people are going directly against the Lord. They're trying to make a name for themselves. Instead of bringing God's name throughout all the earth, they're trying to bring their own name as high as possible, staying in one place. And so this story of Babel is formatted uh, symmetrically. It's called a, a chiasm. It's, um, you've probably heard me talk about it before. It's a common um, literary structure, especially in like the Hebrew language. A chiasm is where uh, a story or um, like a poem will start and then kind of build to um, a, a key point in the middle and then sort of do like a mirror image as it finishes. So the, it might be like an A, B, C, D, C, B, A kind of structure. You'll see it a lot in like Psalms. So often kind of the main point of a section will be the middle. And then we have kind of symmetrical storytelling to the sides. So in this particular case, we have a, a loose chiasm with a story of Babel. And the center point is the Lord came down. And so I'm going to take a little tangent here because I want to actually talk about humor in the Bible. Uh, like I said, in Genesis, God is sort of explaining how he's planning on operating in the future. And I actually think that this is the first example of God using sarcasm. The humor in the Bible is tricky because you know, God isn't funny. 
in the sense that we're funny. A lot of times we laugh because one of us has done something silly or foolish or unexpected. And the thing about God is that he, he doesn't ever do those things. But what he does do is mock the evildoer. And he often uses sarcasm to do it. So I think it's safe to say that God is sarcastic, but not funny. So there is a type of humor in the Bible, um, but it's always at the expense of man who thinks he is bigger than he is. And God is always the one who knocks him down a peck. Because we see that man comes together and they say, we're going to build a tower into the heavens to, to find God. And God says, let me go down there and see what they're up to. You don't need to read Hebrew or have a degree in theology to see the sarcasm. Let us go down and see what they are doing because all this work that they've done has amounted to absolutely nothing in the eyes of God. And yet, God disperses them. And this is interesting language because dispersing is not the same as scattering. God often scatters his enemies, but instead he, he disperses the people of Babel. And I think this is to be understood again in light of Eden. You see, Babel is a, is a type of anti-Eden. When God created the Garden of Eden, He made a place for man to live with the intent to expand. Babel is the opposite. Man found his own place to live with the intent to stay. Instead of having God's providence, like in Eden where God provided all of the food and presumably the building materials that they would need, in Babel they had to make their own bricks out of mud because there wasn't anything there that God had provided for them to build a great city because that's not what God wanted them to do there. And so instead of bringing God's image and worship throughout creation, they settled in one place and tried to elevate their own efforts. So Babel is a type of anti-Eden. But in the same way as God dispersed Adam and Eve out of Eden, He disperses the people of Babel out of that city. And I think that that is to be understood much like when God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. I think it is meant to be understood as a type of mercy. Because God could have wiped them off the face of the earth. He destroys his enemies. He promises that he will not be mocked. And yet, instead of destroying these peoples, he disperses them. He actually pushes them towards obedience, even against their will. He says, I command you to go across all the earth and multiply. Man says, I won't do it. And God says, yes, you will. I'm going to make it happen one way or the other. So this, this dispersion is a form of judgment because the people have sinned against him, and he, he does. I mean, it certainly probably feels bad to them. They're not happy about it, but it's also a type of mercy. And that's just like the flood. It's just like all of God's judgment, where we see his judgment, but at the same time, often even as part of the judgment, there is also a mercy. And then their efforts become a mockery, uh, a monument to their sins. This half-completed tower and this abandoned city remains for them to see, but the name that it was now called is Babel, which is a word that means confusion. It's where the English word Babel, B-A-B-B-L-E, comes from. It means confusion. So now all these peoples that have been scattered through the earth, they have this city and this, this half-built tower, and the greatest, the greatest legacy that they've left behind is confusion, a mockery of their efforts. And I'm reminded of Abimelech, in Judges, Abimelech was sort of a, a, a false judge over Israel, and he was killed when he was laying siege to a tower, and a woman pushed a millstone off of the tower, and it landed on his head and killed him. And his last words were, don't let anyone know that a woman killed me, which of course is exactly what was written down and recorded for posterity. And so as we see, we see that, that God will not be mocked. God will judge sin, and he often judges sin in such a way that he leaves the consequences of that judgment for us to see as a reminder. So the notable points that I want to draw out of this before we, we pull our main theme and start to trace it through Scripture uh, are the, the dual ideas, first from the table of nations, that, that all man is made in the image of God. And then secondly, we see judgment as a type of mercy. Okay, uh, And then I also just want to hit a couple of minor words to keep an eye on. Um, Babylon, which Babel, 
becomes Babylon, or uh, at least the, the cities of Nimrod, some of them become Babylon, so there's a strong association there. When you see Babylon in Scripture, it's often referring to like the actual like people, the, the nation of Babylon, um, which was kind of a persistent enemy of Israel. But in the situations where you read Babylon, and it doesn't make sense to be like literally Babylon. You know, we, we read about Babylon in Revelation, for example, and there's no place called Babylon right now, so that doesn't seem like it's it's talking about the same people. When you see Babylon used symbolically in Scripture, it is typically referring to the, the greatest that the world has to offer. In other words, the most scientifically literate nation, the most militarily powerful nation, the, the strongest, the biggest, the mightiest people. Babylon was renowned in its day for being great among the nations, and, and yet it was wicked and came to ruin. So when you see Babylon... Again, Babel, Babylon, when you see that in the Bible, used symbolically, I want you to think the best mankind has to offer. And then secondly, I want you to see that even though um, we don't necessarily see the, the technical word here, I want you to see that God is already having mercy on the nations. Okay, and when I say the nations, what I mean by that, and what we're going to see in the rest of the Bible, is the nations is often used to describe kind of everybody else. So, like, not Israel, not God's chosen line. And so we have, like, sort of two categories. We have God's people, Israel, and then we have the nations. And so that includes Babylon, but Egypt and Assyria and everybody else. And that includes us. We're the nations, or at least those of us that are not, you know, ethnically Jewish. And so our selected theme then for today is the nations, and specifically God's plan for salvation for the nations. Okay, and so this may seem like a counterintuitive time to bring this up because, like I said at the beginning, we're, we're kind of in like a transitionary period in the Bible where we're just about to start talking about the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so the fathers of Israel a literal nation that's going to be called God's people. But like I said, I think that treating this like a transitionary passage allows us to kind of summarize this universal history that we've just read about before we get into the particular history of Israel. And so even though we're just about to get to the formation of, of Israel, we're reminded one last time, don't forget, all man is made in the image of God, and two, don't forget how foolish it is to try to make a name for yourself instead of a name for God. So those are the last two words that Moses has for Israel before he gets into their own history. And so my, my point that I hope to show in the Bible today is that God intends to save a chosen people made up of all nations. And that he reveals this very, very early on in the Bible. See, it's a common kind of biblical theology trap to fall into to think that in the Old Testament, God's salvation belongs to ethnic political Israel. And then in the, in the New Testament, that changes, and now God's salvation is through faith in Jesus and belongs to the church. But we see, and I think we see even already right here, but we definitely see in the rest of the Old Testament, that that's not the case. God's salvation has always been through faith in Jesus, even if people did not know who Jesus exactly was or would be yet, regardless of historical era or nationality. And that's not to say that Israel is not important or significant or special. They were chosen by God and they received His word and His revelation, which is a huge blessing. And it's safe to say that a much greater percentage of Israelites were saved by the blood of Jesus than of any other nation because God did, in fact, bless them. But being an Israelite was not the mechanism of salvation. And again, I believe that is shown right here in Babel where we see that all man is made in the image of God, but none of man's efforts come to salvation. So let me now walk through more places in Scripture. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm kind of laying out my case ahead of time because I, I want to I sort of prove my point as I go through and show you these many, many places in the Bible where God seems to be demonstrating that He has a plan to save people from all nations. Okay, so first, let's go to Numbers 14. I say let's go. You don't have to turn with me because we're going to go to like 12 different places. In Numbers 14, uh, Moses is pleading with God to not disinherit Israel. Israel has been wandering through the desert. They disobeyed God, and, and God said, Look, like, I'm, 
I'm going to disinherit you before you enter the promised land because you've disobeyed me. And Moses begs God not to. He says, The Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O God, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. So we see that Moses recognizes here that, that part of the point of God choosing a people, part of the reason why God chooses Israel, is to demonstrate to Egypt how powerful God is. So in other words, God has chosen a people so that the other nations will see how great God is. So even, even very, very early on in kind of formal, legal nation of Israel, we see that Moses already recognizes that this is part of the agenda that God has for Israel. And God's response to Noah's plea is actually equally, if not more, interesting. God says, Truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And then he promises to let Israel persist. God is making a, a vow upon his own life and the certain fact that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. God says, I, I swear on the fact that my glory is going to fill all the earth. So, I mean, God seems very, very certain and serious about the fact that his glory is going to fill all the earth. And of course, when God is very serious about something, we should also be very serious about this same thing. So let me give you a few examples, uh, these are just small examples, of some, some uh, prominent places where God has, saves non-Israelites, where he chooses people that are not ethnically from the nation of Israel, and he, he chooses them to be a part of his people. We have people like Uriah the Hittite, uh, the husband, the late husband of Bathsheba. We have Ruth the Moabite. We have Rahab of Jericho in Psalm 87. Among those who know me, this is God speaking, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. God says there are people that know him in all these people groups. <clears throat> and so we, we start to take these together and we start to see this picture where God has chosen Israel, he's chosen a people, but he's not chosen that people because they're inherently superior to the other people groups. He's not chosen those people because he is going to save all of those people and save none of the other ones. He has chosen this people to communicate his revelation, which we now call the Bible, particularly the Old Testament was given to Israel, and to be a visible example of God's providence and his might and his blessing. Israel is not chosen as the means to salvation. Israel is chosen as a, as a demonstration to the other nations. God says in Psalm 57 and 96 and 67 to praise Him before the nations, to make His power known among the nations. The nations just meaning everywhere, everyone, all people. We're demonstrating God's power and His glory and His blessing to all the nations. We can also look at God's, God's judgment over either the other nations or Israel and see still more evidence. You see, it's easy to look at someone either today or someone in the Bible who's under judgment and we can say, mm, look at that, God is, God is punishing the wicked. It's a good thing, they deserve it. And we, of course, forget when we do that that one, we deserve it, and two, God's judgment, as we saw in the flood and many other places in the Bible, God's judgment is part of His salvation. And so God's judgment on a person or on a people can be the very evidence of God having mercy on them and drawing them to salvation. Ezekiel 36 that we read last week, it says, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God says, yeah, when, when I vindicate my holiness, when I, when I defend my holiness that you have, have defiled Israel, then the other nations will know that I am the Lord. In Isaiah 19, he says, The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And we look at Jonah. Jonah is a, uh, an example of someone who didn't get it, because God says, Hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent and return to me. And Jonah says, no, I don't want to. And God makes him. 
And then the people of Nineveh repent and turn to God. And Jonah throws a temper tantrum about it. Because he didn't, he didn't get it. He didn't understand that the point of Israel was to bring God's glory to the nations, even though God explicitly told him to do that. Jonah thinks, oh, great, I'm going to go and tell the Ninevites to repent, and then they're not going to, and God's going to destroy them. But they do repent, and they return to God. And God accepts their repentance, and Jonah is mad. <clears throat> in, the, in the later days of Israel, before Israel was, was finally uh, kind of scattered and in, into exile for the last time, um, we look at Micah and Malachi. In Micah 4, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And Malachi, the last word that God has for Israel before the coming of Jesus, he says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. There's many more examples, but, but I hope by kind of starting with the, the founding of Israel, even starting with Babel and then the founding of Israel and, and moving on through the, the kings and the Psalms and the prophets and, and all the way up to the end of the Old Testament, you see consistently, over and over again, God says, I'm here to save the nations. And Israel, you are, you are my chosen people and you're blessed by me and you are, you are being used for my purposes and that purpose is my glory among the nations. And, and when you think about it, it's a good thing, too, because if you, if you read the Old Testament, you often get the impression that, that Israel kind of stinks. They fail a lot, and they turn away from God a lot, and they get judged and conquered and defeated a lot. And instead of being kind of judgmental to Israel, I think it's, it's wise instead to take that as an example that God's chosen people, again, aren't chosen because they're the best. They are blessed because they are chosen. And so that the lesson to learn from God's choosing of Israel isn't that God only cares about Israel or that God is only saving Israel, uh, but rather that God is using his people to bring his message, his glory, to the nations. And I'm, I'm harping on that a little bit, um, and we'll, we'll get to why in just a minute. Uh, <clears throat> but now we come to, as, as we always do in, in this series, we come to Jesus. So in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is a baby, he's brought to the temple, and Simeon, a righteous man there, prophesies over him. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon, an Israelite, a Jew, a uh, presumably some sort of like teacher or rabbi because he's like hanging out at the temple and is apparently considered to be like wise and influential there, he recognizes, he sees Jesus and he says, this is this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. So he doesn't, he doesn't deny the significance of Israel and the blessing that God has given him, but he rightly sees that Israel culminates in the birth of Jesus. Israel has been leading up to this light for revelation to the Gentiles. And John the Baptist, when he, he declares that Jesus is coming, he says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so Israel was, Israel was not nothing. She was not unimportant or insignificant. She was blessed and chosen, but she was pointing to Jesus, who was delivered for the sins of the world and to be a light to the Gentiles. And we see after Jesus' death and resurrection in the, in the New Testament, in, in Peter's and Paul's letters, um, 
We see further teaching about this. We see in Galatians, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's the nations and to Israel. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in 1 Peter 2 we read, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So you see, Israel was a people chosen by God, and they were told to do certain things, to, to worship him, to bring his revelation to the nations, and to be an example of God's glory to all the earth. And now, now that Jesus has come and he has, he has torn down that wall of hostility between those who are far off and those who are near, between the nations and Israel, between those who were not the people of God and those who were the people of God, he's, he's now made them into, into one people in himself. So everyone who has faith in Jesus is part of this, this new holy nation, this new chosen people. It is then natural to say that the church, which is God's people, ought to do as Israel did, or ought to have done, to worship God, to bring God's revelation to the nations, and to be an example of God's glory throughout all the earth. As after all, as Bobby read this morning, Jesus says some of his last words before leaving the earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we're going back to Babel, I promise. But I, I wanted to draw this, this theme out of, of Israel, of God's chosen people being a, a demonstration and a means for God to bring His glory to the nations because like Israel, the church has that same commission. Okay, and so now, now we're going to go back to Babel because I'm actually going to read for you the reverse of the Tower of Babel. Acts 2 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's all of the disciples. This is after Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's returned to heaven. All of his remaining disciples were in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others mocked, saying, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. See, Peter knows. Peter knows what God was about. Joel Peter, quoting Joel, says, 
In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we see here, looking back over Scripture, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'm telling you, because Peter is telling me, that those who read the Bible properly can see that from the very beginning. All the way back in Babel, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God says, take my image and my worship to all the earth. And in Babel, God says, all of these people, each one of these people, sons of Adam, sons of Noah, every one of them is made in my image. And when they don't obey me to take my image and my worship to the ends of the earth, I make them because God is about bringing his glory to the nations. And as we always do in this series, we're going to go to Revelation and see the, the final culmination of this theme. In Revelation 21, we've read it before, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. All the nations of the earth, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, <clears throat> throughout this, this series, we've, in a sense, been asking ourselves, from the very beginning, what is the purpose of God, right? We're, we're at the beginning of history. We're at the beginning of God's Word. And so it would make sense that at the beginning, God would sort of state His goals, he builds a place, a garden, to be with his people. His people are called the seed of the woman, and their enemy is the seed of the serpent. God will judge all people, destroying the wicked, but cleansing the faithful of their sin. And now we see that introduced in the table of nations, and starting with the garden and continuing from Babel, God is doing all of these things so that the nations will see his glory, call upon his name, and be saved. And so as God has shown His purpose, He has also given us instructions on how to carry out His purpose. What has God told us to do? Even in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over all the earth. He says to Adam and again to Noah. And then Jesus says to His church, go and make disciples of all nations. God is about bringing His name to the nations. And He has commanded us to be about bringing His name to the nations. So let us try not to fall into the traps of Babel. Babel is a bad example. It's a, a disobedient people who are not about what God is about. They're about themselves. So there are, there are two traps that we can fall into like Babel. One is when we try to make a name for ourselves which is another way of saying we try to save ourselves. Or we worship something that man has made for salvation. And so, so we shouldn't expect any, any nation or people or leader or technological advancement or medical procedure or anything to, to save us or to bring about the end of history. You may have heard that phrase, the end of history. Um, someone named Francis Fukuyama wrote a book in the, in the early 90s, just kind of after the Soviet Union was dissolved and the Cold War was like really over. And he, he was basically predicting, like, okay, that's it. Like, Western democracy is going to like sweep over all the earth and like free market economies will result in everyone being like rich and happy and there'll be no need to fight anybody anymore. And, you know, like there's nuclear weapons, so we're all going to be too scared to go to war. And so like, this is kind of it. Like, no more wars. And, you know, we, we, 
look back and kind of roll our eyes at that now, but it was a very serious idea at the time, and it's not a new idea. Constantly, throughout history, every great development has been heralded as, as the one that is going to, to take away whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever wars, whatever weakness, whatever poverty, whatever sickness we're dealing with. And, and what it really boils down to is that we see that mankind is seeking salvation, we're seeking an escape from the judgment of God. But with, with every new empire that rises and falls, with every great technological leap that makes us all richer and healthier, I mean, objectively today, we're living lives that are richer and healthier and safer than anyone throughout all of history could have ever dreamed of, and better than 80% of people that are still alive today. Uh, but have we, have we saved ourselves? I mean, are we free from conflict and discord? Are we free from sin? Are we free from judgment? Have we achieved anything that is ultimately worthwhile in the grand scheme of things? And likewise, do we expect the church to become great and consolidate itself? I mean, Israel would, would be judged and scattered by God uh, when it became proud, when it became uh, big and powerful and healthy. Israel, Israel wasn't judged and punished by God when it was weak and desperate. She was punished and judged by God when she thought too much of herself. And the other trap then that we see in Babel is, is to become too comfortable in God's blessing and fail then to be obedient. I mean, after all, we are, we are united in Christ, as it says in Ephesians, and we're to be gathered together, but, but that should not cause us to neglect God's command to us to multiply and disperse. God has given humanity a mission to spread His image and glory throughout the whole earth. And in this present age, we know that Christ is, is the, the fulfillment of that mission, His death and His resurrection, which we call the gospel. That is the, the ultimate glory of God that we are to spread throughout the whole earth. So I ask you then, are you living with your God-given purpose? Are you living in alignment with God's mission? And another way of asking that is perhaps, what are your life goals? Maybe a certain income or a certain house or a career change or to live in a certain place or to have a particular quality of life for you and your children. And none of those things are bad. The Bible says, you know, that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children but none of that is sufficient either. Perhaps the reason why even today when we are objectively rich and safe and healthy, we don't feel rich and safe and healthy, maybe it's because we're not doing what we were meant to do. And what we were meant to do is, is to be passionate about what God is passionate about. And what is God passionate about? To bring His glory to all the earth. So are you passionate about building something for yourself? or about being comfortable, or about being safe? Are you making your lifestyle choices based on your job, or, or, or your, your, your preferred aesthetic, or the neighborhood that you want to live in? Or are you making your choices based on the spread of God's name? And we desperately need more churches planted throughout all the earth, and the biggest hindrances to that are the lack of evangelism and the lack of qualified elders. So are you seeking to make God's name great by proclaiming it to the lost at the expense of your comfort and your own name? Are you opening your life and your home to the unbeliever? Are you supporting the work of Christ's church? Are you working to become qualified to teach and to shepherd? Now let me ask you this. This is particular to foundation because I look around and I see and I hear all these children. All these children who have been born into believing families, into a church that teaches God's word. They are blessed. They are blessed above all others, what an amazing gift that these children have. But are we squandering it? Because are you teaching your children what God's mission and purpose is, or are you teaching them to be good? I know, that, I know that everybody wants their kids to be successful and smart, and everybody here probably wants their kids to be, you know, theologically literate, and that's, again, it's all great, and you should want that, and you should teach that, but I guarantee you that if you teach them those things for their own sake, they will be proud and arrogant and disobedient to God. 
I've seen it because I've lived it. I grew up with Christian parents, and I have a bunch of friends that grew up with Christian parents, and we all went to church and did the right things and learned the right lessons and had those deep conversations late at night, and so many of them have walked away because they were doing it to make a name for themselves, or they were doing it because their parents were trying to teach them to do it to make a name for themselves, and they didn't get what God wanted us to do. So they just did what they were supposed to until they didn't anymore. And they're gone. And praise God that he saved me through that because I could have just as easily turned out that way. But are you, are you teaching your children, either explicitly or by example, what the actual purpose of our lives as Christians is? In other words, what does it mean to have a good life? And a lot of us probably don't sit down with our kids and say, okay, you know, listen, this is what it means to have a good life, but you sure are showing them. Are you showing them that a good life is comfort and happiness and success and wealth and health and safety or a name for yourself? Or are you teaching them that a good life is obedience to God's mission? Brothers and sisters, the nations are hungry for the gospel. And the greatest hindrances are a lack of qualified missionaries who can start healthy churches in the nations and a lack of Bibles in their native languages. Not every one of our kids is going to become a Bible translator. It's really hard. You have to be really smart and it doesn't pay well. But some of them could be. Is that an option? Are you teaching them to think about that? Are you encouraging them to want these things? God wants these things. Do you want these things? Do you want your children to want these things? Or do you want them to stay in school, be polite, go to college, get a good job, get married, and then figure out what they want with their lives from there? Babel, due to her disobedience, was punished. She was scattered by force in order to achieve the purposes of God. And in Acts chapter 8, we see that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Friends, God's glory will be spread over all the earth. He swears on it. So will you obey, signaling his greatness to the nations, or will you build glory for yourselves and wait for God to scatter you? And God forbid we train our children in this way. I'm not trying to guilt you into doing anything or making any big decisions today. I'm trying to get you to think about what God's purpose is to bring his glory to all the earth. And the remedy for that right now, the response to that right now, isn't to go and tell your kids to all go to seminary. The remedy for that right now is to put God in his right place and put ours in our right place. So I'm going to read this, I'm going to read this psalm to us. It's a song to God. It's a command to you. And then we're going to go straight into our, our third song right after I finish this song. The remedy for making a name for yourself, the remedy for ignoring God's purpose and putting your purpose first is to put God rightly where he belongs, which is above us, which makes his passions and his mission so much greater than ours, where they belong. So listen to Psalm 96, and then we're going to respond. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of all the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is established, it will never be moved, and he will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Please stand. We're going to sing song number 69, My Worth is Not in What I Own. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.
is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. 